Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This week, we are celebrating uh, an anniversary of sorts. Um, our podcast has reached episode 25. And I can't think of a better guest to help us celebrate this moment than Dr. Philip Cunliffe, Senior Lecturer in International Conflict at the University of Kent. Uh, Phil has been a guest on this show before, actually. He, uh, he joined us in episode 16 for our What the Brexit debate, uh, which took place in the Hilton Hotel in Toronto uh, on the occasion of the 2019 ISA annual convention, the International Studies Association convention that took place there uh, last spring. Now, uh, gosh, it's interesting to speculate and to think about um, when might be the next time we get to get together for such a convention. Um, it does seem like a rather dim prospect at the moment. Uh, it might be 2022 by the time that happens again, I, I'd say, but uh, I could be wrong. Anyhow, uh, listeners to the show may also be familiar with Phil's voice from another podcast, uh, Alpha Bunga Bunga, uh, which he records with Alex Hockley and George Hoare. Uh, it's a great podcast. Uh, people can check that out. Uh, I was a guest on their show uh, recently enough and very much enjoyed uh, the appearance. We were talking about the uh, Bernie Sanders campaign and uh, had a good old time with, uh, talking about that. But uh, today we have uh, Dr. Cunliffe on to talk about his new book, Cosmopolitan Dystopia from Manchester Press. Now, this book is a great book. It's a detailed, detailed study, really rich, um, looking at the history uh, of uh, the impact of human rights discourse on global politics since the end of the Cold War. And uh, Phil is not too impressed. And I suppose the question is, what's driving human rights discourse? I, I think for many on the left, uh, it won't be uh, controversial to be critical of human rights discourse. But what, what might be critical is that Phil doesn't sort of take the usual perspective here. He doesn't look at human rights discourse as solely or only uh, a cover for U.S. imperial ambitions. Um, Phil's view is something more like that we can't explain the global popularity of human rights discourse, the extent to which it is invoked uh, even by European powers uh, solely through the lens of American empire or American hegemony. We need a, a more nuanced account, he's saying. And, and this is where he brings in, I think, one of his most vital concepts, which is the idea that human rights discourse has to be read symptomatically. It's a counter-utopian or anti-political uh, discourse. Um, and in that sense is completely symptomatic of uh, the, 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 the dystopian moment that we live in, largely the result of neoliberal politics. So this may, to some, uh, appear to be a paradoxical argument. After all, how can the idea of human rights, how can human rights discourse be anti-utopian? But I think any listeners who may have watched the Adam Curtis documentary, Hypernormalization, um, or, or who've been listening to this show for for a couple of years, you know, they'll already have an insight into where Phil is, is going here. As he notes, a key value at the heart of uh, contemporary liberalism is really 
an aversion to thinking big, right? An aversion to what is sometimes called the fate of utopians. Human rights violations, according to this theory, according to this perspective, really only happen because people want to buck the status quo. They, they, they come along with uh, radical ideas and want to change things up too much. And, you know, you sometimes even get notions like horseshoe theory coming out of this kind of contention, right? You know, that, oh, the left and the right or the far left, the far right are, are really the same theory. They kind of meet on the other side of the horseshoe and that's where you really get into trouble. Um, so this is kind of the core of the argument here, the kind of tone deafness or the lack of critical self-awareness of these sort of liberal advocates of human rights discourse. People like Jürgen Habermas come to mind, or perhaps more recently, Samantha Power. These are scholars, these are intellectuals, public figures who, over the course of many decades now, have supported interventions in places like Yugoslavia or in Rwanda um, on the basis of the idea of a just war, a just liberal war. And, and in so doing, what they've done is they've paved the way for um, liberal justification, ostensibly, of largely American wars. Um, you can see this very clearly in the historic backgrounds the, 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 uh, where we saw interventions from Iraq to Libya to Syria kind of justified on uh, using liberal language. But this isn't just a book about uh, American wars, interestingly enough. And I think this is where this question mark hangs over uh, the, the, the case uh, that human rights discourse is linked only to American empire, because you have to consider... Um, the, 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 the pop cultural moment, uh, you have to consider uh, British and French interventions in Africa, the, the general consensus um, among uh, cosmopolitan liberals in all of these cases is that they believe that the world is ready to receive their ideas, you know, that these cosmopolitan ideals are kind of the natural ideals of a global humanity. Uh, we just haven't realized that yet. Our dictators are standing in the way of the realization of these ideas. And I think reading the book, um, you know, it's, it's very clear um, that uh, the likes of Samantha Power are not that capable, really, of seeing the role of their own interventionist ideals um, in creating the disorder, the fragmentation of contemporary world order. Uh, Phil's going to talk a lot about that in this interview. Now, for myself, I'll, I'll say I think Phil's diagnosis is spot on. I, I don't know that I fully agree with all of his normative positions. I um, I might, I mean, I, I haven't made my mind up yet, as I guess is what I'll say. On the one hand, I think he makes a genuinely compelling case that there's been a substantive uh, restructuring of world order going on uh, since the end of the Cold War. I think he's right that that, that, that that contemporary liberal discourse and interventions have kind of penetrated and weakened um, the, 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 the infrastructure of world order. But I, I don't know that I am quite as persuaded as he is that the solution to the problem is so necessarily to do with self-determination and sovereignty. Um, I may be wrong about this, and, and certainly uh, I, I would contend that the left would be foolish not to try to leverage the power of the state to, to pursue self-determination as much as possible, 
to the extent that it helps us achieve our goals. But but I think there's potentially a risk of fetishizing delinking, what some in academia call delinking, um, and its benefits at the expense of seeing the need to engage on the terrain of international and transnational institutions. Now, for more about this, listeners may want to revisit episode 14, where we talked a little bit about this with Lee Jones, uh, someone else that I haven't fully agreed with on this score. Uh, That said, uh, I don't want to be too critical here. I am not intellectually settled on these ideas at all. Um, I, I, they're more like open questions for me rather than settled views. So, um, I do really think people should check this book out. I think it's a, a, a magnificent book to read. I absolutely enjoyed reading it. You don't actually come across many academic books where the voice and humor of the author comes through on the printed page, uh, as strongly as it does when you speak to someone in person. And of course, Phil is always a joy to speak to in person. Um, I think this would be a great book in the classroom, actually. Um, and it's a it's a great um, sort of primer if uh, faculty want to introduce their students to this kind of um, critical analysis of uh, what they call on the Alpha Bunga Punk podcast the the end of the end of history. A quick note here: we did have some technical problems recording this interview. Um, I was actually recording it in a in a motel room in Columbus, Ohio, uh, during a recent visit there. I know, I know, I crazy to travel in this situation, but um, I was visiting some old friends there and I didn't have um, my usual recording equipment with me. Um, So uh, my end of the line um, isn't that great here, but um, I hope uh, listeners can can, uh, forgive that and uh, focus on what Phil is saying. His voice comes through um, pretty good quality here. Um, so anyway, I'll shut up now and uh, we'll be joined by Phil Cunliffe in, in just a moment. Thanks for listening. Well, welcome to the show, Phil Cunliffe. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm glad to be here. I'm um, good too, mate. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I just survived in the, the lockdown. Um, so I asked you to come on today uh, to talk about your excellent book, Cosmopolitan Dystopia, that everyone should read. And I'll, I'll put some information about that for listeners in the show notes. But uh, before we get started, um, a lot of listeners will be familiar with your voice. Of course, you've been on this show before. Uh, we had a special live episode that you were part of back at uh, ISA in Toronto, back when you know face-to-face conferences were still a real thing. But um, uh, maybe you'd just say a little bit about uh, who you are. Um, I know you're part of the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast, which you record with Alex Hockley and George Hoare, but you're also a, an international relations scholar. And it's more, I think, that hat that you are wearing today uh, with us on the show. So maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your identity in that sense and your career to date. Sure, yeah. Uh, so I've been working at the University of Kent in the southeast of England, which is centered around the um, around the city of Canterbury. Um, I've been working here for about 10 years, and it was my first permanent academic job after I finished my PhD in um, 2008 or thereabouts um, at King's College London. And I did it in the war studies department there. Um, and before that, I studied at Aberystwyth. And, uh, at Aberystwyth. Op- and I, 
Yeah, I did. There, and it was there, in fact, where I, it was when I went there that I'd made the decision to continue in a serious way to become an academic, in fact, um, and also to focus on international relations. Um, and I did my undergraduate at Oxford. So all my um, all my university education has been in Britain, but at uh, several different institutions. Um, and this book was written, although it was written, um, published earlier this year and written over the course of a few years, in many ways, it stretches back right to um, right to the start of my of my one of the reasons that I decided to stick with international relations for my academic career, hmm. and so it's been brewing for a long time, I guess. Yeah, I'm so excited to get into the book with you uh, in a minute here because I think um, just for listeners, I I think anyone who listens to Phil or follows Phil over the last couple of years, as I have, uh, his voice really comes through here. This is a, this, you know, who wrote this book <laughs> and it's excellently written that there's humor in it, uh, references to smoky Russian aircraft carriers and all kinds of stuff. It's great. There's a lovely tone and voice in it, but it's a serious book. And, um, and I think we should, we should talk about the, the premise of it now. Um, there's a lot of different ways I suppose we could enter this, Phil, and uh, I'm not sure which way to go. I, I think I want to talk about the hypothesis in just a moment. But before we do that, um, maybe let's just sort of set some background here. I want to start with the Iraq War, uh, which you describe as one of the greatest criminal acts of our times. And um, I just kind of want to hit on this kind of blind spot that seems to be operating in the liberal commentariat right now when it comes to uh, the connections between the Iraq war and what we might call the good wars that the liberal uh, interventionists have have waged over the last uh, 10, 20 years or so. Um, they think the world is pretty well disposed to their ideals, uh, perhaps more than it really is. Um, in what ways do you think the world is not aligned? Because I think for you, there is cosmopolitan, there, there are cosmopolitan values in the world, but they just may not be the ones that they share. So, so let's just start maybe talking with people like Jürgen Habermas, Samantha Power, and, um, and, and, and who they think their audience is. I suppose just to roll back to the point about um, Iraq, it's it's important, I suppose, to be um, uh, specific about that characterization, because I think Iraq, even you know, I mean, very few people in the discipline of international relations supported the invasion of Iraq, um, as you know, very few people anywhere, um, mm -hmm. uh, given the you know, there was an enormous storm of protest, and I'm sure you know all the listeners will be familiar with it, yeah. but it was seen as an error. It's still, I think, seen retrospectively as a blunder, a mistake, um, a kind of a failing, a foreign policy error, or that perhaps it could have gone slightly better had certain mistakes not been made along the way, mm. such as disbanding the Iraqi army or trying to or firing everyone who was a member of the Ba'ath Party. Um, you know, that it was kind of that it was a series of policy mistakes and missteps rather than something much more calamitous and wicked, I think. Um, something which deserves to be up there along with um, along with uh, thing you know along with the massacres that we saw in the Balkans in Rwanda um, as something which is just a colossal um, bitter and futile 
criminal act essentially so i wanted you know i just wanted to be clear about the kind of um what what it means to kind of frame iraq as one of the greatest criminal acts it's not an error it was yes. willful and perverse and um so catastrophically destructive so uh so i mean that's one point i suppose with samantha power and jürgen habermas yeah. i mean Clearly, they thought they were speaking to, you know, all mankind, as it were. And mm-hmm. that was always the way that um, their their framework was cast. The liberal kind of globalist universalizing ideal, um, it's always was always cast in uh, grandiose terms and particularly uh, particularly on the part of Habermas who obviously he mm-hmm. saw the um he saw the process of though he opposed the Iraq war in general he saw the process of humanitarian intervention as um marking nothing less than a millenarian leap to to um instantiating Kant's specific federation of peoples mm-hmm. that it required the kind of brutal this brutal um uh, this kind of brutal act of force, but that it worked uh, towards it worked towards bending the arc of history towards this um, what was become a cosmopolitan, a cosmopolitan society based around individual rights instantiated at a higher level than that of the nation state. Um, so there and so they thought they were speaking to everyone. I think in practice, of course, the constituency for those kinds of ideas was much more limited as we've learned through the course of the last 10 years or so, um, and that the uh, that, that constituency no longer even supports, I think, those kinds of um, liberal interventions, that the um, there's a growing weight of skepticism and um, hostility to the idea, to the kind of um, heroic ideals, or the heroic era, at least, of liberal intervention, as associated mm-hmm. with the likes of Samantha Power, and particularly Jürgen Habermas. But, and what's striking about um, the the other element of the Iraq war that you mentioned, and that's so striking, yeah. is how far no one is willing to make the connections to other interventions that they supported. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and this is why Libya could happen or why there could be such um, indirect intervention, at least, as we've seen in Syria, through the proxies of um, Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states, um, channeling enormous volumes of um, weaponry and political and diplomatic support for um, the jihadi and Islamist militias fighting the Ba'athist regime. So the I think it's very difficult, and this is the point I make in the book, it's very difficult to overstate the degree of militarism in the discipline of international relations. And part of the reason that it's so disguised to us is that it's covered up in the mantle of the United Nations in different forms of liberal interventionism and um, hopes, tremendously kind of idealistic hopes for transforming the world order, Um, cosmopolitan ideals, um, defending human rights, uh, humanitarian relief of humanitarian suffering, democratization, nation building, and I think all of these ideals and theories, and you know, some frequently kind of sophisticated, complex, nuanced, and subtle, they all disguise right. the degree of militarism that international relations, the discipline, the theories, has fostered, yeah. um, and the destructive consequences of that, because. Everyone opposed the Iraq war, and I think that gave everyone license effectively to support wars in Libya, intervention in Syria, indirect intervention in Syria, as well as direct further intervention in Iraq, um, 
the con- forever war in, in Afghanistan and now the forever war in the Sahel um, right. as a result of um, the French intervention in Mali and consequently continuing war in um, Chad and Central African Republic. Um, so these are the consequent. I think these are directly the consequences of a policy of um, permanent war, effectively. So, Phil, the reason I I wanted to sort of um, ask you the to, to describe the world your book is set in first, so to speak, um, is uh, that in a sense your book is not about describing that world or. The way these liberal interventionists are wrecking it. Your your book, the, the argument, I think, the core idea of your book is 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 why you know you're trying to come up with an explanation of what's driving this. Um, so your your book has kind of these two pillars. You know, on the one hand, you have to persuade the reader that you know that there's a whatever world order we have, it's it's being seriously undermined by these people. But the 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 title is is. A reminder, uh, I think, that there's another burden in this book, and that is to explain how, and, and I'm going to sort of put it in my own words here, but how how the human rights discourse of these liberal interventionists is ultimately undermining the very possibility of order itself, right? You use terms throughout the book, and the title already says it, cosmopolitan dystopia, but you use terms like counter-utopian, anti-political, uh, to describe the agenda of these people and the the effects of their deeds, the effects of their work. So I guess I want to ask you now to elaborate your arguments that explain to the listener, to the reader, why this is happening. But but also I think a question that's important for me is, is it the case that human rights discourse is inherently anti-utopian or did something happen historically, I think it might be interesting to hear you comment on this, did something happen historically to make it this way? Yeah, so this goes partly to um, um, uh, your previous question, which is how that perhaps the world was cosmopolitan, um, but not in the way that people like Jürgen Habermas or Samantha Power intended. And this is part of what I tried to put across in the idea of cosmopolitan dystopia, yeah. that um, that board, that world, which was free of the egotism and chauvinism and kind of petty parochial meanness of the sovereign state, a borderless world in which people kind of look right. towards higher ideals. Um, we did have that, you know, that was real and it's been made real um, in places like this permanent war of the Sahel, where um, the jihadis, the militants, um, the UN peacekeepers that try to keep order, the French special forces, um, mm. none of them respect national borders or um, are any meaningfully way kind of uh, connected to national processes in the kind of maelstrom of chaos that's engulfing that part of the world. And most importantly, I mean, and what kind of directly inspired the thesis of the book, in fact, was um, seeing the rise of Islamic State. Um, a few years back, because when it, when the Islamic State was declared in territory, claiming territory from both Syria and Iraq, um, they explicitly cast themselves as transcending the sovereign state and appealing to a higher authority, indeed, not even a secular authority, I mean, appealing to divine power to instantiate a new political order. That was genuinely cosmopolitan in the sense that it attracted the loyalties of um, thousands of people from all over the world, kind of trailed 
to the Middle East in order to support this vision, which was supposed to transcend national divisions, racial divisions. Um, everyone was to be united. And it was also, as everyone knows, I mean, genuinely dystopic as well with, um, I mean, brazenly, kind of ostentatiously so even, with burning burning the Yazidi women alive who refused to be oh. enslaved, the enslavement of um, the Yazidi women and girls, the slave markets, um, as well as the, all the kind of other um, ostentatious cruelty that they um, that they excelled at. So the world, you know, that was that wasn't the cosmopolitanism that I think Jürgen Habermas had in mind, but it was a cosmopolitanism, and mm. it was the product of um, of liberal attempts to transcend the sovereign state. And this was what happened when they sought to do that. The consequences, you know, the con I think. You have to read the, you have to draw conclusions from the consequences of, uh, of certain of a political project, and this was the consequence of the of that particular liberal political project of democratization, of defending human rights, of humanitarian improvement, and its consequences were genuinely dystopian. So, that's what the and I wanted to, I mm -hmm. wanted to kind of put forward that framework for understanding that it's a substantive, what we're seeing in places like North Africa in the Sahel, in the Middle East, um, and in the territory that was once ruled by Islamic State, is a genuinely post-national dystopia. It is a darkly kind of, a darkly perverted form of those cosmopolitan ideals, and one which I think we have to hold the cosmopolitans to account for. Um, and so that goes to your question of human rights and um, right. what its role is in all this. So I think, I mean, and this I take from um, Samuel Moyne um, and his thesis of Last Utopia. So he makes the point very explicitly that human rights could only really develop in the post-war order. Um, to say, which is to say, after 1945, and more specifically after the failure of the radical hopes of the 1960s, both um, the dashed hopes of the radicals of 68 in the West, but also the dashed hopes of third world revolutionaries, that the results of so many third world revolutions were so disappointing when they became mired in war and authoritarianism. And so he says human rights were seen as the corrective to this that um, as a kind of uh, counter a counterstroke to all of the excess utopianism of those failed radical ideals of the left, and that they were to be kind of um, more moderate, pragmatic, restrained, um, and limited, to moderate and to limit and to restrain power rather than to mount these sweeping programs of radical transformation. You say there's avoid, an, you, you talk about them as having a kind of a, a very, very self-conscious aversion um, to what they call the fate of utopians. Yeah. So this, I mean, so this was some, this is Samuel Moyne's thesis and, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm happy to accept it where mm -hmm. I take it a step further is mm -hmm. to say that, you know, we now we've had 30 years more depending right. on how you count it of human rights and the results are in. And we can say that in all, in all of their, um, efforts to avoid dystopia, um, their claim for superiority over the failed legacies to which they were a response was that they were going to avoid the terrible fate of um, bloodshed and totalitarianism that we saw in the 20th century because they mm -hmm. were more modest and limited and pragmatic because they weren't utopian. They were going to avoid dystopia. 
in, so and indeed they're not utopian and yet we've still had dystopia so that's the extra step that i wish to that i take beyond moin in the book and mm-hmm. which leads to this framing of cosmopolitan dystopia despite their intentions their best intentions which mm-hmm. were anti-utopian mm-hmm. they've still produced dystopias in their wake complete with slave markets mass murder ethnic pogroms um and permanent war not even yeah. not even a kind of yeah. durable political order brilliant uh I mean, I think you've just put it really well there. Uh, you know, I, I, as you're talking, I'm, I I can't help but think about the, the just strange way that uh, they don't seem to understand what you're saying. You know, like they, they don't understand the, the, the dystopian nature of what they've produced. You know, uh, you think about the 90s and the, and the 2000s, especially all through this whole uh, period of time you're describing culturally. Um, it, it was so celebrated, you know, you, uh, whether it's Samantha Power hanging out with Bono or Bono hanging out with Jeffrey Sachs yeah. touring Africa, um, yeah. this kind of idea that, you know, um, we're, you know, no, we're free markets, democracy and um, rock and roll. You know, it's that's, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we're all on this um, sort of end of history uh, train here together yeah. with Francis Fukuyama. And um, the, the, yeah. the lack of self-consciousness is, is outrageous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's still, um, it's still, I mean, it's still, I think, something the, how deeply inured um, that constituency was to the devastation that has been the result is really striking. Um, Mm. I mean, so, I mean, I suppose I should have said this at the beginning, but part of the, you know, originally I conceived of the book as it was going, in fact, to be as to how intervention ended. I was going Uh. to, I kind of conceived it in the wake of um, the Iraq war, because I, you know, I assumed with many other people that there was simply no possibility for liberal intervention after the end of the, after Iraq, you know, it just seemed so, its credibility seemed so irreparably damaged by what had happened in Iraq that it seemed to me impossible that another war could be launched for human rights, defended on humanitarian grounds. And then Libya happened. And not only did Libya happen, but it was justified as if it was taken from a textbook on the responsibility to protect. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the script looked as if it had been written almost by IR scholars, by um, legal theorists and human rights advocates, Um, you know, because it was it had the authorization of the UN Security Council. Um, Russia and China um, decided to abstain because they didn't have any vital interest at stake. Um, NATO defended, you know, bombed the Gaddafi regime on the basis not of regime change, but purely on the basis of defending the human rights of the people whom Gaddafi was set to um, reconquer in East um, East Libya. Mm-hmm. And so it all went to script. And it, I, could, I was just, I couldn't believe that humanitarian, you know, the kind of humanitarianism could be revived for another military expedition in the same region where the last one had gone so disastrously wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that had to be explained. And this is what cosmopolitan dystopia also tries to do, is to explain the recurrence of a disastrous policy on this scale. And I'm not the only one to try and do this because, I mean, uh, you know, both... um, I mean, in fact, these arguments are becoming increasingly common, but both... um, 
uh, Stephen Walt and um, John Mearsheimer have come up with their explanations to explain yeah. these failures, and they see it essentially. Um, and I hope I'm not doing. I hope I'm doing justice to their argument, but it seems to right. me they see it essentially as um, uh, the way in which a certain bipartisan foreign policy elite have got a stranglehold on um, poli foreign policy in Washington. So independently of who happens to be in charge, um, it always was going to be kind of nation building, democratization, liberal human rights of one variety or another. Um, so they explain it essentially in terms of the sociology of the Beltway. And um, and I think you know there's a lot to be said for that, but it doesn't go far enough because it wouldn't explain to you the... You know, it doesn't explain France's forever war in the Sahel now. It doesn't mm -hmm. explain Tony Blair's um, crusading kind of evangelism for it because he's not a, you know, he's not a product of the Beltway or he was, you know, so mm -hmm. you can't explain that in terms of the Beltway. It doesn't explain the interventions mounted by blue helmets, which have often been justified in humanitarian terms as well, defending human rights, uh, protecting civilians, mm. precisely because, you know, those things were done because America didn't want to do them. Um, those kinds of interventions. So it seemed to me a larger, you know, a larger account was necessary that wasn't just cast in terms of um, elite politics in Washington. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I think that's well said. Um, maybe we can uh, just uh, shift to a more abstract uh, level of the conversation for a minute here. Uh, I think it's clear that your 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 argument, your book, uh, is um, a fairly uh, powerful criticism of uh, the way that uh, contemporary liberal or even even you could even say uh, critical thinkers, you know, um, they depend on the variable of ideas as a way of explaining social life, I think, um, specifically how they lean on ideas of international order. But what I wanted to ask you is, uh, where do you come in here? Is it what is it the is the problem here the ideas that these people have, or um, or or what? You know, is it is it are they a class or are they an intellectual cadre of some sort? Yeah. So it, I think the it is a particular way of seeing international order that is. Um, uh, you know, that's uh, propounded by a particular kind of group. And it is a cadre of particular um, of a particular elite who propagate this particular view of a borderless world, um, which is deeply hostile to the uh, to the idea of um, concentrated uh, supreme power in the form of a sovereign state. Because I think it the way in which um, state sovereignty has been singled out as this deeply kind of toxic and um, suspicious, intrinsically totalitarian ideal is something which um, can't be accounted for in terms of the sociology of the beltway that I mentioned earlier. So mm -hmm. it is, um, you know, it is the product of a particular worldview at some level that I think has exacerbated the underlying condition. So the structural, you know, I mean, there are different ways to present this argument, I suppose. And um, one way to do it would be, you know, kind of a structural analysis cast in terms of unipolarity, in mm -hmm. terms of the overwhelming, um, the overwhelming kind of domination of the US. And I, I think, you know, so that's what I call the minotaur analysis at the beginning of the book in which um, yeah, in order to maintain... Argument. 
yeah, exactly. It's very argument as well as um, the idea that the, in order to maintain the um, in order to maintain dollar hegemony, essentially, in order to maintain its status of the dollar as the um, currency of um, last resort, as the reserve currency of the world, and in order to maintain the U.S. status within that, it requires that it provide security for the rest of the world. So, and the trade-off, the tribute paid to the Minotaur, the center of the labyrinth, is the inflow the, that goes to the U.S. buying treasuries. Um, and supporting, um, you know, the way the Germans and um, the Japanese have supported, propped up effectively the dollar through their economic policy since the end of the Cold War in various ways um, through the provision of U.S. security. And I think, you know, that kind of picture is essentially sound, um, but I don't think it would tell you, um, it wouldn't explain within that the specific characteristics of um, how... Um, wars, the kind of the particular ways in which those conflicts have been justified, why so many of these conflicts took place, um, why the US kind of um, embarked on this um, spree of uh, militarism and permanent wars, rather than opting for a policy of uh, prudence and restraint. Um, and also the way in which the the way in which these conflicts have been um, understood. And I think for that, you do need an account of the ideas. So that is what I provide. So um, I think that political economy of unipolarity is still to be written. And I've, you know, I gestured towards it um, by way of reference to Varoufakis's arguments. Uh -huh. But what I wanted to focus on was um, how these how these conflicts have been justified. Because I think that's much more, in a way, much more nuanced and difficult to account for than simply talking about, um, you know, the status of the dollar or, um, uh, you know, which countries are denominating their um, denominating their own currency in dollars or euros or these other kind of usual attempts to account mm -hmm. for intervention in um, deeper terms. I don't think that would capture the sheer kind of crudity and irrationality of um, the phenomenon of permanent war and the liberal justifications for it. So those had to be hunted down specifically, I think. Um, and this is what I tried to do by providing an account of um, the, what I've called the exceptionalist character of, the, of humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect. The way in which it's always, it's always possible to justify every intervention in extreme terms as different from all the rest, as unprecedented to some degree, and therefore you can always justify another war. And I don't think any of the accounts of an, all the critical accounts of human rights have really done that so far. Because what's really striking about so many um, critics of human rights is that it's always, most often cast at least, in instrumentalist terms. So yes. they're seen as um, having been ex human rights have been exploited, instrumentalized, manipulated by sinister elites, kind of who want, um, you know, bent on kind of exploiting oil supplies or whatever. Right. And the perverse, the upshot of that, the kind of inadvertent consequence of that is to constantly recreate the grounds for more war, because effectively you're saying the ideals are good; they've just been um, they've just been kind of exploited by the wrong people, mm -hmm. and. I don't think this was the intention, but this kind of Chomsky-eyed line of critique of human rights yes. inadvertently means that they can always be repurposed to another conflict. And this is the way in which it's occurred. You know, So if Iraq was about oil, which is what many people thought, I mean, I don't think it was, but you know, many people accepted that argument, yeah. um, you know, we 
we next time it won't be about oil it'll be for pure motives right so it's always um i wanted to provide an account of a critique of human rights that didn't simply restricted to um seeing them as being exploited but also seeing these ideals as complicit in these conflicts Another concept that is uh, important to you in the book is this idea of inverted revisionism, um, which uh, seems to be a, a discourse that um, shifts the blame, so to speak, um, for the problems the liberal order faces onto um let's call them minor powers, uh, Russia, uh, Turkey, perhaps even China today in the current context with, with things going the way they are. The Chinese embassy in Houston was just closed uh, the other day. Um, I wondered if you could um, talk a little bit about um, the, 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 the way, uh, you know, in this certain echelon of academia, I suppose, but also in the in the professional intellectual class that orbits these far, foreign policy-making um, institutions in capital cities of the Western world. Um, you know, where does inverted revisionism come from? And, and uh, in the context of, of the answer you've just given, which seems to suggest you're someone who um, sees ideas as important and as a driving force in international relations. Um, what is inverted revisionism a case of exactly? I mean, because many people, I think many listeners might be tempted after listening to us talk so far that it, it, it's, it's a concept that belongs to empires in decline. Um, you know, that it's a kind of a naivete or a, uh, a kind of an un, a kind of a cognitive dissonance that you'd expect to see from an empire in decline is—is is that what is that what's going on here? It's an interesting question. I hadn't—I hadn't actually made the connection myself, um, or not not as mm -hmm. uh, explicitly, perhaps, and directly as that. The I—I um, I, I do make the claim in the book that um, what really has to be foregrounded in all of our discussions about these questions is mm -hmm. imperial you failure, because yeah. um, so much of the discussion, and particularly, I mean, those who you know who were. Um, adult, you know, kind of uh, politically mature, aware, whatever, back in 2003, I would um, remember how everyone assumed this was the kind of apotheosis of American imperial mm -hmm. might and hubris. And it turned out to be a kind of squalid imperial failure, a complete failure of American might to realize any meaningful political goals in the region. Um, so, I didn't, you know, there is there is a connection there, which I suppose um, it would be worthwhile kind of uh, drawing out more. And the idea of inverted revisionism was to try and capture the um, weird irrationality mm -hmm. of the phenomenon, because the usual the kind of the classical ideal of revisionism and in international relations theory is that rising powers are more aggressive, more prone to militarism because they need to reshape the international order to better accommodate their mm -hmm. their interests. It's um, they're opposed to the status quo. Whereas since the victory of the West in the Cold War, you have um, 
the status quo powers revising the international order, despite the fact that it eminently suited all of their interests and purposes. And that is something which um, I think, you know, the the oddness of that, the irrationality of it, the needlessness of it, the thoughtlessness of it, that needs to be accounted for, I think, um, because there was no necessity to it. In kind of classical ideals of revisionism, there is necessity to the revising of the international order. The rising power needs to be accommodated better in the structure of international institutions and what have you. Whereas, you know, at the end of the Cold War, the West had won. They ran the, you know, they run the roost. I mean, what need did they have for um, these kind of vainglorious military adventures that would be so destabilizing um, and so pointless ultimately and so lacking in kind of strategic forethought? And so I coined this category, inverted revisionism, to dis- to try and capture that process because I don't think... Um, I can't think of a, I mean, I talk a bit about it in the book, but I don't think there is any other period of modern international history where you have a display of um, political irrationality on that scale, which is so kind of um, unwarranted, effectively. Um, I'll share an anecdote with you, and I I may cut it from the recording, but... um I uh, remember when when Russia went into Syria, um, <clears throat> and I am friends with a number of uh, American liberal American uh, international relations professors on Facebook, uh, including one or two that may have been in a Newsweek article a few years ago listing the top fifty foreign policy experts in the United States of America, and <laughs> um, I remember. Uh, one of these guys um, remarking when Russia went into Syria, oh, you know, this is this is just imperial overreach. Um, they'll be bankrupt in three months. They can't afford to do this. They don't even have the fuel for it. They can't project this kind of force for very long. You know, don't worry about it. And and Russia's still in Syria, you know, years later. It's uh, There's a kind of a weird hubris or exceptionalism. I'm not sure what the... Um, correct term is there but uh certainly uh i think their uh, assessment of the, uh, the 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 distribution of power in the world seems to be very um disconnected with reality i mean these 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 people are properly out of touch with with america's place in the world what america can and cannot do i think yeah absolutely and the um yeah, the the kind of the um, I guess it was the other element of this, which is so striking, is the naivety in um, not thinking that by intervening in this way, the precedent would be set for other powers to launch yeah, their own interventions. Yeah, yeah. And there's so much, you know, when um, at the same time there's this kind of bizarre um, nominalism, you know, when kind of, if we, you know, we always do it for good reasons, altruistic human rights reasons, democracy and so on. And by definition, if the Russians or the Turks or the Chinese or the Saudis or whoever do it, it will be for kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, perverse kind of grubby egotistical self-interested yeah. reasons and, and it'll be done um, without recognizing and it'll that. be done, um, you know, yes. in a, you know, tanks and jet fighters from the 1960s that are falling apart you know it's uh, it's a yeah and they won't be able to they won't be able to protect civilians as we can because you know yeah, we're better people yeah, yeah so i mean that that 
comes across very uh-huh. very clearly um the the naivety particularly in thinking that um you know if you begin to launch military interventions um that undermine the idea you know undermine the idea of non-intervention that other powers too will take seize upon that precedent in order to pursue their uh-huh. own interests and this is exactly what russia did um both in uh-huh, the caucasus uh-huh, uh-huh. um when they um you know kind of uh, carved out those protectorates out of georgia citing the kosovo um pres- the precedent of kosovo and again when they annexed crimea again citing the precedent uh-huh. of kosovo so those you know that pattern is firmly established and that also is um is also part of the backwash of these disastrous imperial expeditions as well the generalized um, the generalized regional disorder that has stemmed from the precedent set by Western mm, intervention. Mm. So, Phil, I I, um, I want to ask you about um, your, uh, to, to use a funky academic term here, your normative politics. Uh, for, for, for if you if you're if the listeners out there are like me and they hate that framing, we cannot we can because uh, I do not like the word normative politics. But if if we want to just call it like, what's the world that you want to live in here? So. Um, you, you seem to be arguing that there's a restructuring of world order going on here. And it's it's uh, the result of uh, what you term the cumulative weight of intervention since the Cold War. But there's a, a kind of a tension in the, in the book, because on, on the one hand, you seem to be yourself saying that the better world that we would live in is a more multipolar world, um, maybe where this uh, sort of global empire of human rights discourse is is um, is less prevalent. Um, but on the other hand, you seem to be lamenting the mismanagement uh, by the status quo powers that seems to be wittingly, unwittingly bringing about precisely just that. So I, I guess what I want to ask is is kind of this: um, aren't the big powers, the status quo powers, actually inadvertently bringing about the world that you want, right? Is your critique that there is a better way to get to the multipolar world order that you want to see? Or what kind of world would we have to live in politically for that better path, for that better way to manifest itself? Yeah, so my, um, certainly it was an argument made by critics of American uh, American empire uh, unipolarity over the 1990s and into the 2000s, um, and particularly kind of left Schmittians mm-hmm. in IR who envisaged um, that the EU perhaps could be, say, um, a counterweight in a more multipolar world to the US. And I don't have any, I mean, I don't particularly, um, I don't have any particular brief for a multipolar mm-hmm. world. Um, and my, I suppose, my only my only kind of lament for the uh, mismanagement of unipolarity is that I think those conflicts were unnecessary in the sense that they had very, you know, very few of them had any meaningful kind of strategic necessity. So they weren't American power would have been fine, you know, could have been easily preserved and in fact, you know, prolonged perhaps without them. So it's my lament is not for American power per se or for the fate of unipolarity, but for the sheer kind of um, pointlessness and irrationality and destructiveness that has come in their wake, which I don't think, um, you know, I don't think it was 
any of it was warranted or could even be explained in kind of simple mm -hmm. causal terms, essentially. So it's that kind of, it's uh, trying to draw attention to the irrationality of it and the sheer kind of exuberant okay. bloodiness of all of that um, chaos. As respect yeah. to my own ideal, um, it's not so much um, that I have any particular configuration of uh, dis or distribution of power that I think would be um, ideal. Uh, more that the more to I mean to recognize necessity in terms of the fact that the global balance of power clearly is being reorganized. But the insofar as I have an ideal, it would be um, an international in international politics. It would be to emphasize sovereignty and self determination, and that the collective will to govern one's own affairs, however that collectivity might be defined, but the willingness to govern one's own affairs um, and to take political responsibility for that, that seems to me to be one of the great um, victims of the last 30 years and the era of humanitarian imperialism um, is a kind of um, a refusal, a an unwillingness to claim the kinds of responsibilities that go with independent statehood, with governing political collectivities and with the establishment of durable mm -hmm. political order. And that seems to me to be a tremendous blow to any kind of sensible politics, any kind of meaningful uh, political progress, in fact, in a very – or even social economic progress in a very kind of basic and elemental way. So insofar as there is a normative, I mean, it's obviously obviously my normative kind of um, – stance is anti-imperial, um, anti-humanitarian, uh, anti-human rights, and for self-determination and for um, sovereign statehood as the precondition for representative government and democracy. So if, if I was a Marxist, and uh, if, I, I might well be one, but, um, you know, uh, I guess one of the questions I would want to ask at this point is um, why I should... Why do you think I should agree with you um, that a return to this self-determination and sovereignty model that you're espousing uh, would be any better or any more likely to be able to deal with the problems of capitalism uh, in world order? I mean, because I don't think I've heard you disavow this idea, but it, but it seems throughout the book and this conversation today, that we've been talking a lot about ideas as if they're maybe not exactly connected in, in a meaningful way to to class politics, to, um, to, to, you know, we're not exactly using these ideas as ideologies that cover the agendas of capitalism. We've even talked about the invasion of Iraq, the war in Iraq, and, and the question of oil there. I mean, and as you've said yourself, there's people who would have real questions about that and, and your framing of it. Um, but, but you know, it, it, to what extent is capitalism connected to uh, the narrative that you are talking about in this, you know, in this book, this, this liberal narrative? And even if we could return to this sovereign model, uh, why would that route be more or less likely to help us transcend capitalism? So I suppose, I mean, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't uh, say that there are no kind of roots in a, in a classical Marxist mm. politics, um, or at least a Leninist politics of uh, the emphasis on self-determination, I think is um, one of the most um, important overlooked elements of the, of the Leninist critique of empire. Um, not just the kind of material 
the material kind of underpinnings of conflict, of geopolitical rivalry, but also the, the political necessity of sovereignty and self-determination as, the, as part of an organized response to the politics of empire. So, um, you know, for whatever it's worth, I think there is, uh, there is an important kind of um, continuity with those yeah. kinds of ideas. But it is unabashedly a book of international political theory that makes forays into international security, global constitutionalism, um, critique of human rights, and so on. Um, and I think it's precisely because it it was necessary, I think, to deal with the exceptionalist cast of humanitarian arguments um, in them in what I take to be their most kind of uh, sophisticated and complex form, which is the responsibility to protect. And I don't think the you know arguments mm. that simply kind of collapse these accounts into um, expansion for uh, you know fossil fuel reserves or for some kind of other grubby material motive. I don't think any of those fully would be a fully get the measure of or grasp the actual politics of these interventions. So, in as much as there's necessity to um, to the kind of uh, theatrics of American power. I think it's underpinned by the minotaur kind of structure of the global economy mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, the kind of dollar hegemony. Um, but that wouldn't give you an account of these, the way in which these conflicts have been mm-hmm. justified, because they've been justified in a very, you know, not in the kind of old imperial terms of um, white supremacy or um, racial kind of subjugation or even even national self-interest, um, but rather in terms of um, altruism. In terms of um, uh, even in terms of rectifying the problems caused by previous imperial um, expeditions in places like Africa, British intervention has always been justified by you know the fact that um, we were there before, and therefore we've got a duty to people in Africa. These kinds of accounts. Mm. So the you know I think it was it was necessary not to simply kind of simply to draw attention to the underlying kind of uh, political economy of the world order in the last 30 years wouldn't i think fully account for the picture and i wanted to kind of color in the gray and gray i guess i think to provide a more to help provide a more complete picture of what's happened the connection to capitalism and to class politics i suppose is to say that um is so far as the in so far as the class politics is there, it seems to me that it's these are very much um, end of history wars or end of history yeah. conflicts, as you mentioned at the beginning. They're characterized by um, the uh, they're, they they provide the kind of uh, account they provide the seal on um, capitalist victory at the end of the Cold War. Which is to say that um, you know if if capitalism is the highest form of human development, then all that remains, and if that's what's happened in the West, then all that remains is for this model effectively to be exported around yeah. the world. Um, so I think there is, you know, it's it's certainly connected to the dynamics of um, of uh, what's happening internally in Western societies and how they the particular kind of course that they were set on with the end of the Cold War, the pacification of um, of class rivalries, the decline of any kind of uh, labor militancy across the advanced economies. All of this means effectively that they, that set the stage um, not only to enable, I think, a greater degree of, um, of militarism on the part of Western states, 
um, because there was less risks of uh, undermining government by engaging in military expeditions abroad. You know, when there's less political contestation at home, I think um, military adventures are far less risky. Um, that there was no kind of opposition to capitalism in the third world anymore. Um, all the national liberation movements had been defeated, and China was opening itself up to um, to capitalist globalization. So I think, I mean, this is definitely, you know, an important part of the picture. Um, but my concern specifically in the book was to to make this case for cosmopolitan dystopia, like I said before, that human rights have produced, despite their best intentions, that were always so modest and restrained and limited, so anti-utopian, but nonetheless produced their own dystopias um, in the full kind, in the full horrific sense of the term. And on top of that, the need to account for the exceptionalist character of humanitarianism, the way in which it's justified by extreme and constantly justifies recurrent conflict on the basis of recurrently extreme, unprecedented scenarios. And that I think, and you know, as is embodied in the responsibility to protect doctrine. And that required uh, you know, that required thinking of um thinking about questions of global constitutionalism, providing a more thoroughgoing critique of humanitarianism than simply saying it's all about oil mm -hmm. or it provides mm -hmm. cover for yeah. oil wars. Um, so that's that's what I you know. So it's not that those questions that you raised aren't aren't significant, mm -hmm. but that um, I had to um, leave them right. blurry <laughs> to be able to focus on the specific questions that I needed that I thought had been overlooked. No, I, by I have others. to say I, I find it persuasive. I, I you'll have to forgive me. I was I obviously some of these questions are from a devil's advocate position, but don't I don't I wouldn't be under no, any course, illusions. Sure. I am highly persuaded by your argument here. Uh, one question I do kind of want to ask, um, just to sort of maybe begin to round things out and 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 help us move towards some conclusions here. Um, maybe just a simple question. Do, do, if, if human rights is uh, bad, shall we say, uh, what does that mean for the track record of intervention? Has there ever been a good intervention? Uh, I mean, uh, you sort of think in intellectual circles, there have been some kind of legendary moments where you see Noam Chomsky defending the, the Vietnamese intervention in Cambodia, for example, or even as you note in the book, Zizek defending the bombing of Yugoslavia. I mean, um, what's the Phil Cunliffe take on this? Yeah, it's... Um, so... It's. I think it's. It's interesting in and of itself. The because this is in fact the way it's precise. This is in fact the ultimate kind of exceptionalist question, is and it? it is the one. It is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's the one in which um, you know it's kind of the seminar question, right? Is uh, always yeah, seminar. <laughs> um, it's um, always the kind of question that comes up in these discussions. Whenever you do intervention in this, in the university, it'll be kind of um, what are the circumstances in which it's legitimate. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that is indeed the framing of re the responsibility to protect. I mean, if you go to the um, if you go to the uh, report of the International Commission yeah. on Intervention in State Sovereignty from two thousand and one, yeah. yeah. it says very clearly in the foreword by Kofi Annan, the Gen UN General Secretary of the time, it says, you know, if intervention is so bad, what do we do then in these circumstances such as Rwanda? Mm -hmm. And I think the the answer to that is. Um, why is it framed? Why is it always framed in this exceptionalist way? So I think it's got to be a rejection of the idea that um, we have to frame 
uh, these questions in a, uh, you know, what do you do? What do you, what are you going to do in this particular extreme scenario? Because it has these kind of questions. I think they have the structure of a blackmail effectively. Oh yeah. Um, it's a bit like the kind of ticking time bomb, you know, sen- is, scenario yeah. with, uh, which or is the, always the used to legitimate debate. torture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it pre, you know, these questions are structured in such a way as to prejudge the answer effectively. Um, because the obvious, you know, you will be able to modulate your, you know, the hypothetical scenario to a point where everyone in the room will eventually agree. Um, and so I think, it, you know, that's the, that's the difficulty. So my, you know, so my answer to the question is, though, I think it's, uh, it's something which has to only can only really be thought of concretely mm-hmm. and in specific circumstances. So it can't really be answered abstractly. And if you begin to answer it abstractly, you are playing the exceptionalist game, mm-hmm. which is to say you're um, either implicitly or explicitly reordering the assumptions of international order in order to make intervention easier. And and that world is the dangerous world of cosmopolitan inter- dystopia that we inhabit, which is, and that is indeed the premise of the responsibility to protect. So how do we kind of modulate the international order in order to make intervention more legitimate and easier, which then kind of has the consequences of a world in which war is easier and in which all the destabilizing and bloody consequences of intervention are also more likely. So my answer is that we don't, I think you know, if we're to have intervention, then that has to be, um, they should be, you know, it should be clear that it is a derogation rather than um, the exceptionalist or the, um, the kinds of decisionistic exceptionalist politics, which demands that international order be reorganized in such a way as to make intervention easier. So, that's the way I split it. So I can, I think, you know, I mean, I think probably on balance, the Vietnamese intervention in Cambodia probably, you know, could be pointed to as an intervention in which on balance, it was better that the ghoulish regime of the Khmer Rouge was destroyed. Um, but it's a retrospective judgment, right? And it's not as if that would be an endorsement of um, the way in which the Vietnamese ruled Cambodia effectively um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all the kind of conflict that came with it. Yeah. But the difference is the Vietnamese never sought to reorganize international order to make it easier for them to intervene in places. And I think that's <laughs> the real <laughs> kind said, of yeah. uh, mm. it's the real kind of dangerous consequences in these debates. So... Um, you know, you can't deny exceptions in politics. There will always yeah. be exceptions to the rule. The question is, what's the rule that you wish to live under? Yeah. And I think these humanitarian debates um, deflect away from the question of what rule do you want to live under to constantly getting um, caught in these repetitive kind of uh, scenarios over which what's the next kind of extreme scenario that we have to resolve and it's that kind of um, blending of norm and exception that I think is one of the hallmarks of cosmopolitan dystopia, mm-hmm. where you lose sight even of a, of a, a you know a wider horizon of what you would like the of an in, what kind of political world you would like to live in, because to do that you would be utopian, and utopias we're told by the human rights crowd are dangerous; they lead to dystopia. So we're trapped. Until we, I think, until we refuse to play the game and we refuse to, um, you know, we become unafraid of seeking to improve things rather than just melioration as the humanitarians kind of counsel us, then we'll constantly be engaged in recurrent wars to 
relieve human suffering because we've not actually set out to abolish human suffering to begin with. That's actually a very good place probably to end the interview. But I, I have one more question if you have a minute. Sure, yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> this is uh, stepping outside of the book, okay? So forgive me, but I, I, I kind of want to ask you a speculative question maybe. Um, but uh, there's, there's a radio show in Chicago called This Is Hell that some people might be familiar with. And they, they end all their interviews with a, a question that they think the guest will either hate to answer or which will provoke an answer from the guest that the audience will hate the guest for for speaking, for uttering. So I, I'm going to rip that off uh, for this show, uh, because after reading your book, it kind of occurred to me that maybe one reason why the Trump administration hasn't I mean, look, I, I, this this question could be heard as, as I, I'm perfectly aware that Trump has, you know, prolonged and even ramped up the drone program and has, you know, you know, carried out some pretty shady stuff in Venezuela. Uh, but but broadly speaking, I think Trump has been a, a quiet president um, when it comes to killing the citizens of uh, other countries. Uh, it seems to me that U.S. armed forces have probably killed fewer people under Trump than they have um, under, I don't even, I don't even know how far, you'd care back, far, far back you'd care to go. Um, it's not to be gainsaid that in 2016, during the debates, he was extremely critical of uh, liberal interventionists. He was critical of the, their neoconservative cousins. Um, he was critical of the decision to go into Iraq. Um, it's possible he's some sort of different breed of conservative. And I'm just curious, how do you explain the paradox of Trump, you know, who's uh, people talk about him as a fascist. Um, he certainly doesn't do himself any favors in that respect. But he seems to be in some ways the least imperialistic US president of our of our lifetimes what would you think no i would agree with that and i don't think i mean i don't think it's paradoxical in the sense that his um i think it's just a different vision of us politics i think it's um i mean so this is alex gorovich's argument with respect yeah. to trump um is it's to do with uh, it's I mean, you know, it's partly, obviously, it was his way to demolish the credibility of the political status quo and the political establishment that he was attacking by drawing attention to um, their military failures and the failures of nation building in Afghanistan and Iraq and so on, and the blood and treasure that had been wasted on those conflicts. And indeed, I mean, I understand that some of the kind of statistical analysis shows that um, military families are the ones that have voted um, very decisively in support of Trump. Um, given their war weariness. So, I mean, you know, that's, um, you know, I think that can be explained. But on the other side of it, I think is it speaks to his lack of um, his lack of political um, power, essentially. Mm -hmm. So far mm -hmm. from being mm -hmm. a kind of um, grandiose expansionist fascist regime, he's not only kind of been singularly unable to impose much of his politics um, on the kind of machine of the American state, but has also been failed, you know, as kind of, um, I think that also speaks to his uh, unwillingness effectively to take political responsibility. The idea of having to claim responsibility for what would happen in a war, I think, is uh, anathema to Trump. That's Alex Gorovich's line, and I think it's probably right. But, 
you know, it is a small, um, it is, it's without a doubt that um, one of the few redeeming features of the Trump presidency has been that he, it's been less war prone than, like you say, mm. so many kind of uh, previous presidencies. That said, I mean, the kind yeah. of the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, of the Iranian general in Baghdad, I think that spoke to, you know, the fact that they assassinated a leading figure of um, a third part of a third country in another country, mm -hmm. um, you know, and claimed it as self-defense was, uh, you know, spoke to kind of mm -hmm. uh, how deeply embedded U.S. exceptionalism is, even in a president who's critical of the neocons and critical of international liberalism. Yeah. So they could still kind of uh, kill someone in a um, in another country, you know, Iraq, not Iran. They killed an Iranian in Iraq, justified by self-defense. It speaks to kind of an extraordinary conceit, and again, kind of an exceptionalist vision of U.S. power um, that has, you know, goes all the way back to Madeleine Albright's um, idea of the U.S. as an indispensable nation. So the distance between him and the liberal internationalists is not as great as I think he would make out. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I think, you know, that's worth thinking about. And I suppose in cosmopolitan dystopia, I want to say, you know, it's not just kind of exceptionalism as a U.S. political identity of the U.S. as the city on the hill, but exceptionalism as a fully fledged political order now, because we've seen the consequences yeah. of these exceptionalist visions. And, you know, you can see the consequences in um, in the Sahel, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan. Um, so that exceptionalist vision is a whole kind of global package. It has a, it has a whole political structure with it of international criminal courts, of um, tribunals, of uh, globally deployed special forces and drones, airstrikes, you know, cruise missile strikes, um, nation building wars, democratization. It has a whole package. It's not just the kind of political identity of the US. And it's that kind of um, dystopic picture that I wanted to, um, to kind of bring more to the foreground with the book. It's a great book. I'd really encourage listeners to to check it out. It's Cosmopolitan Dystopia. I'll put a link to uh, the Amazon, the the US Amazon page for it uh, in the show notes. But, but Phil, we'll let you go in a second. You have another book out as well. How do you how do you do it? It's um, I guess it's been uh, I've had a fire under me for the last few years for one reason or another. Um, so it's called the New 20 Years Crisis, and it's uh, looking at the decline of liberal international order uh, from 1999 to 2019. It'll be out shortly, and um, it's uh, kind of pursues a parallel track, I guess, to cosmopolitan dystopia. Yeah, um, people, anyone listening to this who's, who's read any IR will be uh, familiar with uh, people like E.H. Carr and, and other sort of venerable international relations scholars of, of old, and uh, they'll, they'll get the title and then they'll get the provocation, I think, as well. I'm really looking forward to reading that one, Phil. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'd be, I'd be, I'd really be interested to hear what you think. Would you like to uh, come on the show again when, when that's out? You know, I was hoping you would ask. I would absolutely love. I'd absolutely love to. Yeah. Oh, brilliant! I'm so uh, so pleased. Okay, listen, this was lovely. Thank you so much uh, for coming on and joining us today. I really think people could benefit from from reading this book. So um, check it out, everyone. And uh, Phil, if they want to follow you online, yeah, I'm on Twitter at the Philippics. The Philippics. What a wonderful Twitter handle it is. Uh, okay, folks, we'll cut it there. Uh, Phil. Thank you. Thank you. And everyone will see you again soon for another episode of, of Fully Automated.